turned upon the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what will happen in that coming. Uh, This passage, or the passage that we're going to consider today, really began with the section that we saw two weeks ago, beginning in verse 11, when he sees heaven opened, and behold, what does he see but a white horse and one sitting on it who is called Faithful and True. We were told, behold... And in looking, we saw the Lord Jesus Christ appearing in splendor and glory at his second coming. And so having looked at the Lord Jesus Christ in his splendor and glory in verses 11 through 16, we now see what occurs at his coming in verses 17 through 21. And again, this is not the first time, nor is it the last in the book of Revelation, that we will consider the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Each time that we look at it in different places in the book of Revelation, as it were, different aspects are given, different things are focused upon. And here we are going to see what is focused upon is the end of the, uh, or the final judgment of both the beast out of the sea and also the false prophet and then also uh, the eternal judgment of the wicked. Well, with that in mind, let's now turn uh, to Revelation 19 and hear God's word beginning at verse uh, 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to All the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's uh, once again look to the Lord uh, in prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, These are sober words uh, once again. Lord, even as we turn to this portion of Revelation, we give you thanks uh, that you are not a God who has allowed evil and Satan to win at the end of the day. Lord, our God, that you are a God who establishes righteousness and judges with equity. The Lord, our God in heaven, we pray 
that you would now give insight into this, your holy word. Write it upon our hearts, we pray. By your spirit, use your work that our minds would be trained and our affections turned to you, our God and our King. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The reality of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is something which is either ignored or mocked in the world in which we uh, live. I wonder when the last time was that any of you saw a commercial on your television screen uh, that said, uh, this item that we're trying to sell you is, is very nice, but you know, it's not ultimate. Christ is going to uh, come again someday, and uh, all of the toys and trinkets that we've placed our hope in, well, those are going to greatly pale in significance at that time. Anyone see a commercial like that uh, this past week? wonder how many of you had uh, conversations uh, with co-workers where they brought up the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not something that uh, features in the world in which we uh, live. Uh, 2 Peter 3 tells us what the attitude of the world uh, will be. It says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so as Christians, if we bring up that reality that Christ is returning, uh, the world thinks that you are nuts. Indeed, that's what the Bible tells us. But nonetheless, the Bible time and again throughout the Scriptures calls us to remember that truth. The Lord Jesus Christ, who surely came in that first time, just as was promised, as a baby in the manger at Bethlehem, And just as he in his first coming died on the cross and rose from the dead, as had been prophesied, so just as surely our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come again. You can't turn to a book in your New Testaments that don't proclaim loudly and clearly that Jesus Christ is yet going to return once again. And I think that's one of the chief purposes of the book of Revelation. The New Testament ends on this note by turning our eyes to the risen and reigning Jesus Christ and reminding us that this Lord Jesus is going to return. The book of Revelation will end even. The next to last verse, Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. To which John answers, saying, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. And so it's important that you and I turn our eyes to this second coming of Jesus Christ. And what is going to happen at his coming? Well, again, through the book of Revelation, we've seen a number of different things. 
But in particular, these verses out of Revelation 19 turn our eyes to two things in particular. We're going to first of all see, with Christ's coming, the final judgment on the beast and the false prophet. The final judgment on the beast and the false prophet. We'll see this in verses 19 and 20. And then, secondly, in verses 17 and 18, but then also in verse 21, we will see the final judgment on all the unbelieving world. The final judgment on the beast and the false prophet, and the final judgment on all the unbelieving world. Well, let's look at these things in turn. First of all today, the final judgment we have in our passage, the final judgment on the beast and the false prophet. Uh, We're taking uh, these verses a little bit out of order. Uh, 17 and 18 announce a uh, a, a, a coming judgment. And we're going to turn to that under the second point uh, because that judgment is fulfilled then in verse 21. But first of all, I want us to look at verses 19 and 20, the final judgment on the beast and the false prophet because verse 19 here uh, presents us with a final battle. We're told there to look just as John earlier in verse 11 looked and saw a rider on a white horse. Once again, now in verse 19, he looks and what is it that he sees? Well, we read there that he sees the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And then in verse 20, we are told also there of the false prophet who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who had worshipped its image. So we have a beast with its armies and also a false prophet. Now, we have run into these figures earlier in the book of Revelation. Uh, Earlier in Revelation, we saw that this uh, first beast uh, was uh, the beast who was who rose out of the sea. And this beast is symbolic. So in describing the beast here, this beast is a symbol. And the beast is symbolic of civil government in its persecuting power directed against the church. And here we are told of this great persecuting power against the church. And so the beast here with the kings of the earth who flex their muscles, as it were, seeking ultimate power and authority and are turned against Jesus Christ, the Lord and his anointed. It's really a fulfillment, is it not, of Psalm 2 that speaks there of the kings of the earth who have gathered themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And here they are arrayed with very Vast armies. Notice the plural there. It's armies. It's a vast number of them with a broad diversity. Various peoples who together have now come together to oppose Jesus Christ. We are told that this will be active even at the second coming of our our Lord. And So the beast is active. The false prophet also is active. The false prophet... Uh, refers to the same figure 
that was described in Revelation uh, uh, 13 as the beast who is out of the earth. The beast who is out of the earth. And the false prophet, is it is the same. And it represents a kind of false religion and ideology that speaks lies, that counters the truth of Almighty God. And in reality, we are told that this too is going to be present at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, appears. So we ought not to have any notion that when Jesus Christ appears again, He's going to appear to a world that has been completely Christianized. No, there is still going to be vast opposition to the Lord at His coming. And here it's represented as this beast and as this false prophet. Well, haven't we seen that? Don't we continue to see that in the day and age uh, in, which, uh, in which we live? Uh, in every continent today, there is the persecution of Christians. It wasn't just a first century thing. It continues in every age. In the West, uh, we often feel this persecution on certain restrictions on freedom of religion, on mockery, on discrimination against, uh, against Christians. Outside the West, in many places, Christianity is illegal. And people are imprisoned uh, for seeking to share their faith or for owning a Bible. Uh, there are acts of terrorism that are done against Christians with authorities uh, turning a blind eye to those things. There's even Christians throughout the world who are being uh, put to death. There is still very much uh, the persecuting power of this uh, world. And the point here is that it's going to continue to increase. And it will continue to increase until that day when Jesus Christ appears again. No, this doesn't mean that we ought not to seek uh, to work very hard uh, to uh, maintain public morality and the religious liberty of, of Christians. We should do that. Just like Paul who insisted on his Roman citizenship amidst evil, persecuting Rome. And Paul did that in order to protect Christians. Uh, to say uh, to the Roman government, you can't use your kind of unchecked, crushing authority against this Christian uh, community. So too, you and I, even today, ought to insist on a certain constitutional guarantees of, of liberty, the freedom of speech and religious assembly. And, and similarly, foreign governments should be pressed not to commit atrocities against small Christian minorities in many countries. So just the fact that there is a persecuting power doesn't mean that we ought to simply say, well, so be it then. No, okay. But what it does mean, dear friends, is that when we do seek uh, to work uh, against, uh, uh, to seek to maintain liberties in this, in this world. Nonetheless, we should not be surprised and we should not despair when it seems like it is a very uphill battle. In fact, the Scriptures insist even that this anti-Christian persecuting power is actually going to culminate in a figure that the Bible speaks of him as the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. 
One who will claim absolute authority for himself. Who will demand absolute allegiance, religious worship, and who will deceive many in those activities. So we do have a beast that is at work. And similarly, just like we see the beast at work today, and until the second coming of Christ, so we see the false prophet, or the beast out of the earth, who is at work as well. The world has, in every age, been full of idolatry. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the nations surrounding Israel were idolatrous nations. If you look in the first century, at Paul and his various missionary journeys, what was he doing? He was preaching the gospel amidst idolatrous people. Think of Paul in Athens and all of the religious ideas that were swarming about Athens. Well, what was true in the Old Testament time and true in the first century continues to be true today, doesn't it? Even after all of these years and years of gospel proclamation, there is still false religion and false philosophy and idolatry that abounds. We live in a world in which there are a whole variety of false religions out there. We live in a world in which secular humanism has taken root, in which various kinds of postmodern philosophy are being uh, proclaimed. Different moralities than the morality proclaimed uh, by the Bible. The Bible is routinely ignored. People are have different thought patterns than that given to us in Holy Scripture. Friends, and that is going to continue until the second coming of our Lord. This is why, again, just like we are to oppose the persecuting power, similarly we are to fight back against false forms of philosophy and thinking. We are to develop a Christian world and life view. We are to engage in apologetics. But nonetheless, there will continue to be this false uh, prophet. And this false prophet, we are told in uh, uh, verse 20, is one who does signs by which he deceives those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. And so this is the warfare. The battle lines have been drawn. On the one hand, you have the beast and his kings and his armies and the false prophet, now they are arrayed against the Lord Jesus Christ on His white horse with His armies of faithful Christians. So verse 19, verse 20, the battle lines are drawn. But then, what is the battle that we read of? Verses 19 and 20. And essentially, there is none. Did you notice that? The armies are arrayed. Our armies are all, are all established. Battle lines are drawn. And we read simply this, verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Isn't that great? You know, some of you enjoy war history. and Maybe you're a Civil War buff and, and you, you read about all the various battles of the Civil War. So Bull Run and the Second Battle of Bull Run and Chancellorsville and Gettysburg and Vicksburg, and you, you study these battles, and in each one, you, you might even set up your little figurines, and you know, these ones are, this is where the lines are drawn, and over there, and then suddenly this, this general has this military strategy and tactic, and, 
and, and, and they're going to charge in this area and others are retreating somewhere else and it's this, this give and take, this skirmish and maybe this battle one side wins and another battle the other side, the other side wins and eventually the, the tide of the war seems to go one way or uh, the other and finally there's a, there's a victory. How different than that does this battle appear? This battle, the armies, all the vast armies of this world, the beast and the false prophet, and all of their force and power are arrayed. The Lord Jesus appears. He wins. He wins. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 says the exact same thing. It's a beautiful expression. There we read about that man of lawlessness who appears just prior to the coming of our Lord. We're told, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring it to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He appears and he wins. Now, why is that? Well, is the, re- the reason is, is because the battle was fought and it was won at Christ's first coming. At Calvary. And in that empty tomb. When Jesus Christ came bearing the sins of His people and by His sacrificial death has secured the salvation of everyone who belongs to Him. And by His victorious resurrection has come into resurrection life, which He will bring to all who trust in Him. And so no matter what the evil of this world does, what, no matter their sin, no matter their, 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 uh, their, their power and their strength, they cannot compete with this Lord Jesus who has already secured final and everlasting victory for all of His people. The battle is His. And do you see what confidence this should give us? Friends, we live in dark days. Yes. We live in the days of the beast and of the false prophet. And and I'm here to say that we ought not to expect a, a final victory until that time when Jesus Christ appears. So next year, if Christ hasn't come back, or 10 years from now, or 100 years from now, likely are still dark days that are ahead. But, we know the one who will gain the victory. And who will gain the victory simply by his appearing on that final day. And that gives us confidence. And this is why you and I ought not to be held captive by fear. Now sometimes, we can be afraid, can't we? We look at the culture around us and we say, I'm afraid to bring up children today in in this kind of culture. I fear for our nation. Fear for, for our world. Well, it's right to be aware. It's right to... Uh, uh, to use the resources that we're given to, to speak the truth of God into our present culture. But dear friends, you and I ought never to be held captive by fear because this world is the Lord's and Jesus Christ rules and reigns and the victory is His. That's why I love the title of a, 
there, there's a book by Stephen Nichols that was just, just came out a couple years ago or something, but it's called A Time for Confidence. And that's right. As Christians, this age is an age for confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even that's why we, we bring up children in this world and we say, all the pressures that they face and the ungodly world that we're surrounded in. Yes, but friends, you and I know Jesus Christ who is strong enough to save you. He can save them as well. And He can save their children as well. And so we look to Him and we have confidence in what the, what the Lord is able to do. That's our confidence. This beast and the false prophet. Again, think of their mighty power in the world in which we live. They're going to be defeated merely by the appearance of our Lord at his coming. So, the final judgment against the beast and the false prophet. And the good news is, as we've been going through Revelation, now we have seen Babylon, which represented what? Worldly society. And now the beast, which represents a worldly government and its persecuting power. We've seen the false prophet, which represents worldly ideology. All of them have been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. And it's going to get really good when we get to chapter 20. Because then we see the one who stands behind all of that, Satan himself, also finally cast in to that lake of what good news that is. Well, the final judgment on uh, the beast and the false prophet. Let's move on secondly now. Secondly, uh, to the final judgment on all the unbelieving world. Uh, these verses tell us again of the final judgment of the beast and false prophet, but it doesn't stop there. And you'll notice the passage began in verses 17 and 18 with an angel who was standing in the sun, uh, this central place which exhibits something of brightness and radiance, even the radiance of the glory of God. And he is then proclaiming with a loud voice, but the words that he proclaims are these. He calls to the birds to come and to gather for the supper of God. To eat the flesh. And then it's going to go through various categories of kings and captains, of mighty men and horses and riders. And here it's listing all of the powerful and the mighty. And he's saying that merely your worldly possessions, your worldly power, your worldly status cannot save you from the coming judgment of God. And so it's all the great and mighty, but lest you think it's only them, it goes on to say, and the flesh of all men, men used generically, men and women, all people, both free and slave, both small and great. It is announcing a judgment against all humanity that is a part from God. And then if you go down to verse 21, you see indeed that this judgment comes. The rest, we are told, are slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And indeed, those birds that were called upon in verses 17 and 18 
are engaged as they're gorged with their flesh. There's so much to learn here. Here we see certainly on the one hand the judgment of uh, a judgment that is uh, universal. Who does this judgment come upon? It comes upon all. But it comes not upon those who belong to the Lord. That's made clear. The Lord is with His army. But these are those who are with the beast and the false prophet. Those who are described in verse 20 as um, having the mark of the beast and worshiping its image. You say, who has the mark of the beast? Well, you may recall earlier in the book of Revelation, we said uh, that there are really only two categories of people in the world. There are on the one hand those who have the seal of God upon their foreheads. They are redeemed by Him. That seal is the Holy Spirit inside of us, assuring us of eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's one category, but if you aren't those with the seal of the living God, if you're not possessed by Him, then you are one who has the mark of the beast. That is, you belong ultimately to Satan. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, as Ephesians 2 tells us, in the sons of disobedience. And so the mark of the beast here, what's described as that, is simply describing the entire world that does not believe upon Jesus Christ. The entire world that has not submitted themselves to the Lord. And it is all of that world, Every single one who has not bowed to the knee to Jesus Christ is included in this this judgment. Well, it's described here, this judgment, as a judgment in which the birds will come and eat uh, their flesh. Why this kind of language? Well, well, uh, You know, in the ancient world, uh, to not have a proper burial was a thing of great dishonor. And so, to die, and to die, you think especially, say, on a battlefield, uh, where the birds begin to come and to to feast on, on you, well, that was a sign of dishonor. It was a sign of total defeat and humiliation. Um is even a sign of, of the curse of, of God. And so here it is saying that this world in all of their might and strength nonetheless is going to come to that place of defeat and shameful subjection uh, to the Lord. And lest you think that that lake of fire that's described for the beast and for the false prophet is only for them, uh, we'll see later in Revelation 20 and verse 15 that it uses that same language to describe all the unbelieving world. Verse, chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's a picture of the eternal suffering of hell. It's a picture of a judgment 
of the wrath of God, of divine retribution for sin. That's what's meant by this picture. And you'll notice that this event is called, verse 17, the Great Supper of God. What a startling contrast this is to that other supper that we read of in Revelation 19, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's saying, basically, that all humanity is going to participate in one of two great suppers. Either you will be part of that bride of Jesus Christ, ready for her bridegroom at His appearing, and for the eternal joys and delights that come with feasting with Him for eternity. Or you will participate in that supper, which is for the vultures and eagles of this earth, feasting upon you as the one who is judged. That's the imagery that's given. And it's saying, one of the two suppers will be the one that you attack. It's a great supper of God. Well, these are sober words of judgment, a final judgment on the unbelieving world. And it's saying here that you and I need to be those who live in light of these realities. Such a coming day of judgment will soon be here. Owners close by making a couple words of application of this second point. This final judgment on the unbelieving world is coming. What does this mean for you and for me as uh, believers? Well, the first point is this. It is that the coming judgment day ought to make us zealous in the work of evangelism. The coming judgment day ought to make us zealous in the work of evangelism. You know, the world around us, the unbelieving world around us, does not, as it were, does not know enough, or their, their, their minds, as they are turned in enmity against God, are not thinking clearly enough to be afraid for themselves. They don't know enough to fear for their own souls. They are kind of blissfully ignorant of the doom that awaits. Dear friends, you and I know what is coming. You and I know of the coming judgment day and of its certainty. And so what is it our job to do? Our job is to tell others. And to tell them of judgment. And to tell them of hell. But yes, also then to tell them of Jesus Christ. And of His redeeming love for sinners. And of the grace that met you in your uh, state when you were under the condemnation of God. And the beauty of this loving Savior. And now, friends, now is the day of salvation. That's what this is saying. There is a day of judgment that is coming, but it is not yet. It's coming. It's not yet, though. 
So what does this mean that we should be doing as Christians? We need to be zealous in the work of evangelism. And there's many things that you and I should be doing. This is why uh, really central to our lives as individual Christians and to the life of the church ought to be the evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. What is most needed in the light of the coming judgment day. And so let me just give some examples of things that we, that we can do. On the one hand, the Christian church ought to be producing Christian literature and Christian media that gets the gospel message out. And that's a good thing, that books are produced, that tracts are produced, that sermons are posted online. Dear friends, we ought to seek to do a variety of things like this to get the message of the gospel out. Distribute the message of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Similarly, what we can be doing is is to continue to support the preaching of God's word in this place. We're part of a local church Do you realize that by both the tithes and offerings that we bring that pays preachers, but also by our faithful attendance and involvement in the life of the church, by God's grace, you have a part in ensuring that words of life and words of truth are being preached, proclaimed in West Springfield and in the surrounding region. That here is a place where people can come and to hear that message which will save them from the terrors of hell. That's a glorious thing. And so what goes on in this church is not a small thing at all. It's something of extraordinary importance. Here is a place where the life-giving message of the gospel can be heard. So then we ought to seek to bring people to hear the good news as it is in Jesus. To invite them to church so that they might hear the gospel proclaimed. Well, a third thing that we can do is to support the work of missionaries. And again, we do that. But it ought to be something central that we do, that we're concerned not only for gospel work in this place, but for the taking of the gospel abroad in many lands across the globe. And so we, we support missionaries financially. And as you give dollars that go to, that, to those missionaries, dear friends, you are enabling that individual to contribute to gospel work so that others can hear the message of the gospel and be saved from this coming day of judgment. That's a beautiful thing. And that's why we ought to continue to do that. I'm so encouraged. We increased our church's giving to missions significantly this past year. Might it continue to be the case? A fourth thing that we can do is to make intentional efforts to reach out to this community in which we live. But we do that. That's one of the purposes. It's the chief purpose even of the ESL course that we do, to build friendships and relationships in order that we can tell people about Jesus. But it means also that in our individual lives, we ought to have that as a goal. Can I tell 
non-Christians that I know. Maybe they are family members. Maybe they are friends. Do I have non-Christians that I desire to tell about Jesus Christ? You should. And so then we ought to seek the courage to tell others about Jesus. You know that you are, perhaps, the best person or one of the best people to tell somebody else about Jesus Christ. Maybe the Lord's given you a relationship with somebody that, or a friendship with somebody. The Lord's put you in their lives. And one of the primary reasons is that you can show them Jesus and tell them about Jesus. Are we doing that? Is that intentionally in the, in the way that we're thinking as, as, as people in light of the coming judgment day? And it means as well, in addition, that you and I can pray. And we ought to be praying regularly for the lost. To pray in general ways. Lord, cause your gospel to triumph around the world. Cause nations to be brought to the Savior. We pray in general ways, but we also pray very specifically for that individual that you're seeking to share the gospel. For the neighbor that's never darkened the churches. Lord, would you bring that person? Come to hear the gospel and to believe. We pray. You see, in light of the coming judgment day, we remember that now, today even, is the day of salvation. We seek to take that gospel out. It needs to be central to our lives as Christians and to the life of our church. Let me give a second application, and with this I close today. And the second application is this, that the coming judgment day ought to make us brim over with thankfulness for the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. That the coming judgment day ought to make us brim over with thankfulness for the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. You know, as we read these verses today, we read of these birds being called upon to eat the flesh of many in this world, as we read of those who have been deceived by the false prophet and receive the mark of the beast and who worship its image, as we read of the rest who are going to be slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ, as we read these words of coming judgment, I hope that your response was not, well, those really bad sinners out there, they're going to finally get what's coming to them. I hope instead that your response was, but for the grace of God, that's me. Apart from God's sovereign grace, that's who I am. I was born with a nature that rebelled against God, that said things and done things that are shameful, that believed lies, and I would continue to believe lies, lest the Holy Spirit would come and change my heart. How thankful I am that the Lord Jesus Christ has come not simply as the judge on that final day. 
But he did come that first time as a Savior for sinners like you and like me. He gave his life. Costly life. He gave his very life. Bearing our sin. Our rebellion. Our antagonism against him. He did it. Bearing those things. Suffering the wrath. The final judgment wrath that you and I deserve. In our place. So that we can be free. It's the good news of the gospel. Friends, whenever the gospel tends to become to you, tends to come to you as just kind of old hat. Oh, that story again about Jesus. Let's move on. When it fails to excite you and to thrill you, can I encourage you to once again turn your eyes upon a judgment scene like this to remember that's what I deserve. This is what I deserve. Apart from the grace of God. And when we remember that, our hearts are then turn to Jesus Christ in love and thankfulness. Might we love him then for all that he has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we do praise you as a God of justice and righteousness. We thank you, O Lord, that this beast that persecutes and the false prophet who deceives that their day is coming and they shall be no more. You and I, O oh Lord, that we all here can look forward to that time when in the glories of your presence such things will be no more. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your saving work for sinners like us that though we deserve hell, you have sent your own Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from the hell we deserve. Lord, would you turn our hearts to you in abounding thankfulness. Give us a zeal as well for souls that others might be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, our God, use us to this end, that we would live lives transformed by Jesus Christ, by your gospel, lives certain of your second coming. Lord, do these things in us, we pray. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing now in response. It's a hymn that's uh, printed on the insert in your bulletin or it appears on the wall. But in this hymn, we do thank the Lord for what he has done for us in